My name's Deanna Safier and I'm joined today with, um, by John McHugo. And um, before I hand over to him for his talk, I would just like to do a little bit of housekeeping while we wait for um, participants to join us. Um, thank you all for joining us. And thank you, John McHugo, for agreeing to um, do this talk. Um, the questions, if you have any questions during the presentation, please do post them in the chat box. I will be monitoring them. Uh, John McHugo himself won't be looking at it, but I will be monitoring them and feeding questions to him during the Q&A session after his talk. Um, we probably won't get a chance to go through all of the questions um, that we get asked, but we will endeavor to answer any questions that we haven't had, a time, uh, had time for after the fact. Um, so keep an eye out on your emails. We will be sharing the recording um, the transcript and any answers to any questions we didn't have time for on our email. It'll be put on our website, so keep an eye out for that. Um, I will also use this opportunity to tell you that we've got a couple of other exciting events coming up. Um, I'll post links to all of this in the chat box as well, but we've got um, Sarah Helm, who will be doing um, we'll be talking on Toppling Balfour. Um, this is a event that we have just confirmed so I will be sharing much more information on the mailing list once we have that. Um, that will be on the 23rd of July and some of you will note that, that was the date that Tim Llewellyn was um, to speak on um, the media. We've had to postpone that until the 13th of August so that we can um, slot Sarah Helmet and her talk in on the 23rd. I will post links to both of those events in the chat box in a minute so um, you can register in advance if you like. And um, all future events will be shared on our mailing list and I will post a link on how to share join our mailing list as well. If you find this talk interesting we obviously very much appreciate any kind of donation. I'll share that link as well. Um, so now that I have done all that bit of housekeeping and we've got quite a few people joining us, I will introduce John. So um, John is a trustee of the Balfour Project and he's a board member of CABU, which as many of you know, is the Council of Arab British Understanding. Um, he's got an academic background in both international law and Islamic studies. And he's the author of three books on the history of the Middle East. In reverse order of publication, these are A Concise History of Sunnis and Shias, Syria, A Recent History, and A Concise History of Arabs. His, his talk today is an expansion on what he says about the Palestinian mandate in A Concise History of Arabs. Um, John's publisher is Saki Books in Westbourne Grove. Some of you might be familiar with this um, shop. Their shop is reopening tomorrow after lockdown um, and it'll be open every day except for Sunday uh, from 12 until 6. But their online shop is also um, open and they very kindly have said that if you want to order um, any of uh, John's books before the 31st of July, then um, if you use the code McHugo25 when you check out, you will have a 25% discount. So that's for all attendees of this webinar. And again, I'll post links in the chat box. So John, I am going to hand over to you now. Thank you very much, Diana. It's a month since George Floyd was killed in America. The statue of a slave trader in Bristol has been pulled down and an Oxford college has decided to remove its statue of Cecil Rhodes, who was a generous benefactor to that college. If the mantra global Britain is to mean anything except governmental spin, it must mean acknowledging and coming to terms with our global past, including the dark side of the past and not painting it over. Let us hope that there will now be a much overdue focus on teaching the history of the British Empire in schools, a topic that is in danger of being airbrushed out of our national narrative. It is one of the more uncomfortable chapters of that history that I'm looking today. For 30 years from the final months of the First World War, Britain had direct rule, crown colony rule, to use the term, over an Arab country, Palestine. 
When Britain first occupied it, it was a fairly peaceful part of the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Of course, during the war, it suffered tremendously from famine, from the brutality of the young Turk junta with their executions and deportations, and of course, from being turned into a battlefield between the warring armies. As we shall see, Britain had a duty to safeguard the people of Palestine's well-being and development and to lead them to independence as a sovereign state. Britain solemnly committed itself to do this. Yet when Britain abandoned Palestine in 1948, it left Palestine without a government and in a state of vicious civil war with no light at the end of the tunnel. In a sense, that civil war still continues. Britain abandoned the people of Palestine to a future that will be catastrophic. Britain's policies had also unwittingly sown distrust and hatred between Arabs and Jews, and that too persists to this day. Palestine, leaving Palestine, was one of Britain's greatest failures in the dismantling of its empire. Britain's failures in failure in Palestine had consequences that are with us still, not just the sufferings of the Palestinian people over so many decades, but a major contribution to the instability of today's Middle East. In recent years, it has provided organizations like Al-Qaeda and Daesh, the so-called ISIS, with tools to recruit and radicalize. This country has a historic responsibility that we should acknowledge and accept. On the 14th of May 1948, the last day of the British mandate over Palestine, and the day on which David Ben-Gurion read out the declaration of the independence of the State of Israel in Tel Aviv, a senior legal advisor in the British Foreign Office sent a telegram to the British Mission to the United Nations in New York. It included the following statement. If the Jews claimed to set up a state in the boundaries of the Jewish areas as defined by the United Nations resolution of the 29th of November, and the Arabs claimed to set up a state covering the whole of Palestine, there would be nothing legally to choose between these claims. Consider the enormity of the situation on which the advisor would be asked to give his advice. Britain was washing its hands. How had it come to this? Britain had requested the right to rule Palestine in a moment of imperial hubris three decades earlier. Britain had asked for this privilege for three reasons. The first was the imperial pride and prestige of becoming the guardian of the Christian Holy Land. The second was the wish to put into effect a wartime political commitment to, facilit to facilitate the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. What that might mean was kept deliberately vague, at least in public. This had the dangerous consequence that people could read into those words whatever suited their own objectives which was a recipe for storing up future conflict. It had not been thought through. The third reason was strategic, to gain a naval base at Haifa and a land bridge to the British-operated oil fields of Iraq. Sadly, a desire to foster the well-being and development of the people of Palestine and to guide them to full independence, that was just not on this wish list. It was the other way round. Rather, those were the obligations Britain realized it would have to assume as the price for staying on in Palestine. But as we have seen in 1948, Britain was abandoning its obligations to the people of Palestine. Most crucially, it was abandoning its obligation to ensure their security. Within hours of the legal advisor's telegram, the Union flag would be lowered for the last time, and no one could say what flag would replace it. 
the probability was that the ongoing violence would intensify, sucking in outside forces. And when the guns fell silent, different flags would replace it in different parts of Palestine. This is the map showing the areas defined by the UN partition resolution for the proposed Jewish and Arab states in Palestine, to which the legal advisor was referring. The proposed Jewish areas are blue and the proposed Arab areas light brown. What he was saying was that the proclamation of a Jewish state in the boundaries of the Jewish areas as defined by the map would be no more legal and no less legal than an Arab proclamation of a state covering the whole of Palestine, including the territory within the boundary of the Jewish areas. In other words, complete chaos. The UN General Assembly resolution to which this map was attached was never put into effect and was not legally binding as a document save for the fact that it terminated Britain's mandate. To paraphrase Eddie Lauterpacht, it did not therefore give the Jewish community in Palestine a right to, to a right. It, sorry, it did not therefore give the Jewish community in Palestine a title deed to establish the state of Israel, nor for that matter, did it give the majority Palestinian Arab community the title deed to a state? Today, Israel is a sovereign country. It was admitted as a member state of the UN on the 11th of May, 1949. Since then, its existence as a state has been incontrovertible. Some people may wonder whether the view of the legal advisor I quoted was controversial when he wrote his advice a year before Israel was admitted to the UN, but it was not. His advice reflected the position in international law at the moment when the sun was setting on Britain's rule over, the Pal over Palestine for the very last time. I discovered the quotation from the legal advisor in Victor Catan's book, From Coexistence to Conquest. If you want to find essentially the same legal reasoning on this point, argued from an impeccably Zionist source, I would draw your attention to Sir Elihu Lauterpacht's Jerusalem and the Holy Places. The main thrust of Lauterpacht's argument, that Israel has a legal claim to sovereignty over the old city of Jerusalem, has been thoroughly discredited. But one of his building blocks in constructing that argument is that the partition plan was of no legal effect, save to terminate the British mandate. On that narrow point, he is right. I could also draw your attention to the examination of the establishment of Israel in James Crawford's The Creation of States in International Law, the standard academic work on how sovereign states come into existence. In Crawford too, you will find essentially the same reasoning as in Catan and Lauterpacht. So, on the last day of British rule, Palestine was in a state of civil war. Both Jews and Arabs had already been pitilessly massacred by the other side in cold blood. British soldiers were now chiefly concerned with their own safety and nothing more protecting themselves as they travelled to Haifa docks for embarkation. It had been like that for months, whilst Jewish militias battled it out with much less organised Arab groups. It is now generally accepted by historians that at least 300,000 and possibly as many as 400,000 Palestinian Arabs had already lost their homes in the violence before the 14th of May 1948 either driven from those homes by Jewish militias or prevented by force of arms from returning. Those refugees would never be allowed to return. To put this in context, there were approximately 1,400,000 Palestinian Arabs at the time and half a million Jews in the whole of Palestine. 
Britain knew full well what was happening and its soldiers stood idly by instead of enforcing security. Something reminiscent perhaps of the periods of inactivity of the British authorities in India during the nightmare of the partition of that country a year before. Britain's legacy in Palestine was ethnic strife that has lasted to this day. I have already alluded to the role that this played in radicalization. More generally, it has also provided copious fuel to what Bernard Lewis called as long ago as 1957, as a clash of civilizations. As I have already said, it added immensely to the instability of a part of the world that faces many other challenges. So how did Britain's rule of Palestine come to this shameful end? Let's look at how Britain's Palestine mandate came into existence, for that is where the contradictions arose. At the end of the First World War, Britain and France hoped to acquire colonial territories from Germany and Turkey, defeated powers, as compensation for the losses they had sustained in the fighting. Yet largely as a result of the influence of President Wilson's famous 14 points, it was decided not to allow them to annex territories of the Turkish Empire in the traditional fashion. Instead, a novel concept known as a mandate was developed and was inserted into the covenant of the League of Nations, the new international organization that was established in the hope of avoiding wars in the future and was a forerunner of the United Nations. Its covenant was made an annex to the Treaty of Versailles, which entered the war with Germany and was signed on the 28th of June, 1919. Article 22 of the covenant sets out the mandate system. The word mandate means authorization. Under its League of Nations mandate, Britain was authorized to rule Palestine, but there was small print that set out and restricted Britain's powers. The small print was contained in two documents, Article 22 of the Covenant and a Palestine Mandate document, which was largely drafted by Britain itself. Let's look first at Article 22 of the Covenant that sets out the concept of a mandate. To those colonies and territories, which as a consequence of the late war, have ceased to be under the sovereignty of the states which formerly governed them, and which are inhabited by peoples not yet able to stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world, there should be applied the principle that the well-being and development of such peoples form a sacred trust of civilization. The language is patronizing, but it is the language of the time and reflects the attitudes of the time, those of the victorious powers in the First World War. But if a sacred trust of civilization is not a very strong formal obligation, I do not know what is. Britain's obligation was to ensure the well-being and development of Palestine's people. That meant guiding them to sovereign independence. Everyone knew at the time that this is what those words meant. Article 22 continues. The best method of giving a practical effect to this principle is that the tutelage of such peoples should be entrusted to advanced nations who can best undertake this responsibility and who are willing to accept it and that this tutelage should be exercised by them on behalf of the League. Tutelage means instruction or guidance. Britain would be the advanced nation selected as their mandatory for Palestine. It would have the responsibility to provide instruction and guidance to secure the well-being and development of the Palestinian people and prepare them for independence. Let's continue. Certain communities formerly belonging to the Turkish Empire have reached a stage of development 
where their existence as independent nations can be provisionally recognized, subject to the rendering of administrative advice and assistance by a mandatory until such time as they are able to stand alone. The wishes of these communities must be a principal consideration in the selection of the mandatory. In fact, the wishes of these communities were not honored because Britain and France decided between themselves who would have which mandate and over what territory. They made absolutely sure that the people of Palestine and Syria were not given any choice in the selection of the mandatory. But it is interesting to note that their existence as independent nations was intended to be provisionally recognized. Let's look at one other final paragraph of Article 22. Members, the degree of authority, control or administration to be exercised by the mandatory shall, if not previously agreed upon by the members of the League, be explicitly defined in each case by the Council. This meant that a legal document would be drawn up, setting out the terms of the mandate. There were a total of three mandates over former Turkish territories. Britain's mandate over Palestine, which included what is now Jordan, Britain's mandate over Iraq, and France's mandate over Syria and Lebanon. Here is a map showing the three mandates. You will note that many of the boundaries of the states that now exist on these lands were inherited from the mandates, save for the mountains of Iraqi Kurdistan and various pockets in northern Syria, Arabic was overwhelmingly the majority language virtually everywhere. There was a strong resistance among its people to the splitting up of the area west of Iraq, which had been known since time immemorial as Belerdisham and is sometimes called Greater Syria or Syria within its natural boundaries. And that area was split between Britain and France. There was abundant evidence that this was not the wish of the people. Not just the report of the King Crane Commission in 1919, which looked into the question and was suppressed by the British and French governments, but also the observation of the British Commander-in-Chief in the region, General Allenby. It is even mentioned in the semi-official British history of the peace conferences at the end of the First World War. By splitting Syria and Palestine to satisfy the wishes of Britain and France, the two powers were breaking the provision in Article 22 that the wishes of the people should be a principal consideration in the selection of the mandatory. How else could France have the mandate over Syria and Britain that over Palestine? I'm not making, and I must stress this, I'm not making any political statement here about how Syria and Palestine should have developed subsequently. The point is that should have been left for them to decide. Yet by imposing their mandates, Britain and France frustrated the development of an Arab constitutional monarchy under the Emir Faisal with a democratic legislature, which would have covered both countries. It was envisaged as a decentralized federal state. We can never know whether it would have remained as a unitary state or whether its two major units, Syria and Palestine, would have grown into separate states with separate capitals in Damascus and Jerusalem. There was a growing consciousness of a specifically Palestinian identity at that time. And today, Palestine and Syria each have strong and different national identities. But we should never forget that this embryonic constitutional monarchy, which Britain colluded with France in strangling at birth, was probably the best chance the peoples of the area ever had to develop their own functioning democracy. This imperial division of peoples who had wanted to stay united was tolerated by the League of Nations, despite the fact that it was inconsistent with Article 22 
even worse. The League gave Britain and France complete discretion to decide the boundaries between Syria and Palestine, subject only to the rubber stamp of League ratification. That was not consistent with Article 22 either. The frontiers of the mandates bear no resemblance to the previously existing Turkish administrative boundaries. These were for the most part solely administrative boundaries, not political ones. So you may feel this does not matter. But the new entities of Palestine, Syria, Lebanon and Iraq had no previous existence as political entities beyond the establishment of the sorry, before the establishment of the mandates. The territory of modern Jordan, for instance, had been part of the province of Syria or the province of Damascus, which extended from the Syrian cities of Hama and Homs in the north, right the way down to Aqaba in the south on the Red Sea. But it did not include the, the region around Aleppo that is part of the modern state of Syria or anywhere on the Mediterranean coast. Jordan was split off from that province and added to Palestine. Palestine itself had previously been, div been divided between, between the province of Beirut, which extended far to the north into what is now Syria, and the separate district of Jerusalem. My point is that neither the administrative boundaries of the Turkish Empire nor the mandate boundaries were chosen by the peoples referred to in Article 22. But those peoples existed and the mandate boundaries ought to have reflected their existence and been chosen by them. They did not and were not. Instead, the boundaries were straitjackets, as were the mandates themselves, imposed on the peoples for the convenience of Britain and France, like many colonial boundaries drawn by European powers in Africa 30 or 40 years before, often with disastrous consequences. I have not yet mentioned that crucial document, the Balfour Declaration. The reason is that it was just a statement of intended future British government policy when it was written on the 2nd of November 1917. That was still the case in 1919 when, when Article 22 of the Covenant of the League was agreed and became binding. But now the Balfour Declaration becomes relevant as we turn to the other small print document, the Palestine Mandate itself. This was agreed in 1920 and did not and sorry, and incorporated the Balfour Declaration. The Palestine Mandate itself did not come legally into force until 1923, or it could be argued until 1924, although Britain ignored this and implemented it with effect from the 1st of July 1920, a date that will be 100 years ago tomorrow. In the discussions at the conference that drafted the Palestine Mandate, the Zionist leader, Shine Weizmann, was fully involved. Although he did not get his way on absolutely everything, he had a major say, perhaps the major say, in what it contained. On the other hand, there was no input, repeat, no input, by anyone representing the Palestinian Arabs or the Syrians, and no attempt to consult them. That, like so much else that I have already covered about the creation of the Palestine Mandate, was utterly disgraceful behaviour on Britain's part. Now to the Palestine Mandate itself. The first paragraph of the preamble does not define Palestine beyond stating that the mandate Whereas the principal allied powers have agreed for the purposes of giving effect to the provisions of Article 22 to entrust to a mandatory the administration of the territory of Palestine formerly belonging to the Turkish Empire within such boundaries as may be fixed by them. You will see it deliberately avoids defining the area of the territory and effectively authorises Britain and France 
to define that territory in whatever way will suit their purposes best. The preamble states that the mandate's purpose is for Britain as the mandatory to give effect to the provision of Article 22. Then look at this next paragraph of the preamble, which goes on to state, whereas the principal allied powers have also agreed that the mandatory should be responsible for putting into effect the provisions of the Balfour Declaration in favour of the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which might prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. This reference to the non-Jewish communities appears deliberately designed to mask the fact that about 90% of the population of Palestine was Arab. If you include the Arab Jews, which you could legitimately have done in 1917, it was actually more like 95%. Article 2 contains a formal obligation. The mandatory shall be responsible for placing the country under such political, administrative and economic conditions as will secure the establishment of the Jewish national home as laid down in the preamble and for the development of representative institutions and also for safeguarding the civil and religious rights of all the inhabitants of Palestine, irrespective of race or religion. No national parliament, no directly elected legislative council, no self-governing institution was ever established by the British in Palestine. Although such institutions were established in Iraq, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, all the other Middle Eastern territories placed under a mandate. There is very little else in the Palestine mandate when you read the document as a whole, aimed at fulfilling Britain's obligations to secure the well-being and development of the Palestinian Arabs and to lead them to independence. On the other hand, there is a great deal that is specifically aimed at facilitating the establishment of the Jewish national home. This included the recognition of a Jewish agency as a public body entrusted with carrying this out and representing the Jewish community in Palestine, whether they wanted this or not. The Palestine mandate was thus an ambiguous document that was bound to lead to conflict. When Shine Weizmann showed it to the Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Gaspari, in April 1922, in the hope of enlisting his support, the response he received was that the document appeared incompatible with Article 22 of the Covenant of the League, which of course it was designed to implement. It was subsequently, at least in theory that is, it was subsequently described by a British Royal Commission as an elaborate yet not very lucid legal document. It does not state whether the intention is that the national home for the Jewish people will eventually become a sovereign state, or that Jewish immigration, which is to be encouraged, including the settlement of close Jews, uh, sorry, including the close settlement of Jews on the land, doesn't discuss whether that is intended to lead to a Jewish majority between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. Reading it, it is easy to see why Britain is so often accused of making contradictory promises to Jews and Arabs. Israel emerged as a sovereign state at the end of the mandate, but Britain failed utterly in its obligation to prepare the Arabs of Palestine for independence. It is also easy to understand why the Palestinian Arabs resented the Balfour Declaration so deeply and why Arthur Balfour is today a hate figure in Arab countries. Like the Vatican Secretary of State, Palestinian Arabs have pointed out quite justifiably and on many occasions that the declaration appeared incompatible with Article 22, as well incidentally with the promises Britain had made during the First World War in the Hussein McMahon letters. 
They demanded time and again that Britain should abandon it. One of the saddest legacies of Britain's rule in Palestine was how these three decades sowed mistrust and hatred between Arabs and Jews. It is sometimes asserted that Britain did fulfill its obligation to the Palestinian people by creating Jordan as a Palestinian homeland. This is just not so. There are essentially two arguments brought forward to that effect, and it is important to show why they are both fallacious. Article 25 of the Palestine Mandate, if we turn back to that, allowed Britain to withhold the provisions of the mandate concerning the establishment of the Jewish national home from the territories between the Jordan and the eastern boundary of the Mandate of Palestine as ultimately determined. Ultimately determined, of course, meant ultimately determined by Britain and France, as they might decide in accordance with their own interests, not the interests of the people who lived there necessarily. The area east of the Jordan is now the sovereign state of Jordan, which like Israel is a member state of the UN. I mention this because you find, sometimes find it asserted that Jordan was part of Palestine, that Article 25 removed it from the area for Jewish settlement, as though this provides some kind of moral justification for Israel expanding into the West Bank or even up to the Jordan as compensation for the fact that the Zionist movement had lost its claim to settle Jordan. Shine Weizmann, for instance, frequently made this kind of argument. But it is absolutely wrong. The Balfour Declaration was no more than a statement of proposed British government policy until the Palestine mandate became legally operational, which probably only happened in August 1923, even though Britain applied its provisions from the 1st of July 1920, which, as I mentioned, is 100 years ago tomorrow. The lands east of the Jordan were never ever covered by the provisions concerning the Jewish national home. It is not as though they were removed from an agreed plan for the establishment of the national home. Subject to suggest the, country, the contrary is just plain wrong. Britain's separation of those lands from Palestine, sorry, the Brit Britain's separation of those lands from Palestine between the Jordan and the Mediterranean was thus not some equitable partitions of the lands of the Palestinian people that suffered, that satisfied Britain's obligation towards them under Article, Article 22 of the Covenant of the League. There is another canard to be mentioned at this point. This is the Faisal-Weizmann Agreement of the 3rd of January 1919. A rather similar argument is sometimes built on this stillborn agreement. According to this argument, so it runs, the Emir Faisal, acting on behalf of the Arab Kingdom of Hejaz, agreed with Weizmann, the president of the Zionist organization, that the Balfour Declaration would be implemented in Palestine. Now, there are a number of problems with the agreement, but the crucial point for today's purposes is that the agreement was between the Zionist organization represented by Weizmann and between the Kingdom of Hejaz represented by Faisal. The Kingdom of Hejaz had no status to make any agreement affecting the people of Palestine, nor had the Zionist organization. The agreement could not, therefore, take away any rights from the Palestinian people and was not an international treaty. It was a nullity. It follows that nothing in it can detract from the sacred trust of civilization, the well-being and development of the Palestinian people that was incumbent on Britain by virtue of Article 22. To conclude, Britain's hubris led this country to demand the right to rule Palestine. It took on obligations to the Palestinians. It then failed to fulfill those obligations to a truly catastrophic extent, which is to Britain's shame. The consequences are with us still. Look around you. Think, to take just one example, of the misery endured today by the people of Gaza. 
and how that can be traced directly back to Britain's failure in 1948. Britain has to acknowledge its historic responsibility. The way to achieve that is by taking the measures to ensure that the rights of the Palestinian people in international law are enforced alongside those of Israel. Measures are needed, not just words. Otherwise, there is no way for Britain to regain at least some shred of its tarnished honour. Thank you all very much for listening to me. Thank you so much for that, John. Um, we've had some questions coming in in advance of this talk, as well as um, some coming in in the chat box as you were speaking. So I will start off with one that came in advance mm -hmm. um, from Mike Joseph. Don't know if he's watching live, but um, he says, my MP visited Israel in 2017, after which he said, quote, we met one of the Palestinian ministers, the stubborn refusal to even countenance that there is a desire for peace on the Israeli side. You cannot fail to be impressed by Israel as a beacon of freedom and liberalism. And yes, we will celebrate the centenary of Balfour with pride. Stephen Crabb, MP, Chair, Conservative Friends of Israel. As his constituent, what should I ask him to encourage a rethink? I... I would say educate yourself. That's the way to encourage a rethink. I mean, the history is actually quite clear. People often say that everything is so complicated and then they give up it all up and understand and, you know, say, uh, I'll go and look at something else instead. But as I mentioned, the tragedy of Palestine is linked to many other problems in the Middle East today. What I think I would say to him is um, he mentions or he suggests there is a failure on the Palestinian side to acknowledge a desire for peace on the Israeli side. And I think two things there. The first is that there are many, many Israelis who really, truly desire peace and knows what that entails. But I think there are many other Israelis who get seduced by the kinds of arguments like the one I mentioned about how Jordan is really Palestine and that is the Palestinian state or didn't the Amir Faisal hand Palestine to Shine Weizmann in the Faisal-Weizmann agreement and they believe this kind of thing gives justification for Israel not looking into its own past. Now both sides have to look into their own pasts but the suffering of the Palestinian people is palpable and what's one thing I could suggest you could do, as he is your MP, is suggest that he contacts uh, a man called Martin Linton and a lady called Sarah Apps, who run a very good travel service for visiting Palestine and seeing what the Palestinians actually have to live through. Because it is very easy to, to go and just see one side of the story. You should see both. Um, yes, I think that uh, will be very interesting for quite a few people who have told us that they've tried to get in touch with their MPs and been disappointed with uh, the re responses that they've had. Um, I will post a link to Sarah and Martin's uh, company in the chat box in a moment. Um, but while I look for that, I'll ask you your next question. And um, this one's from Lawrence Joff. Um, he says, hello. Did hello, Lawrence. Britain, <laughs> um, did Britain's mandate for Palestine differ in form from its similar mandate or tutelage with Iraq and Transjordan? Uh, Right, the Palestine mandate covered both what we think of as Palestine and Transjordan, so it was a single document. Um, it took the form of a, uh, well, it has the status of an international treaty, um, but it was a document, of course, that emanated from the League of Nations. Britain's mandate over Iraq was of a completely different legal form, which shows a certain, shall we say, ingenuity and um, possibly um, creativity 
in a way that might be, you know, if we talk about legal fictions, that sort of thing. Because what happened with Iraq was that the mandate took the form of a treaty between His Britannic Majesty and His Majesty the King of Iraq. So Britain, in double quick time after World War I and going down a number of false, false paths, like thinking they would originally rule Iraq as though it was part of British India, came to the conclusion that Faisal, who I've mentioned in my talk and was driven from Syria by the French, would make an excellent king of Iraq. And actually, um, Faisal's reputation is highly controversial, but I'm something of a fan of his. He didn't get everything right, but I think he was one of those very many moderate Arab politicians over the last hundred years who have tried to do the right thing and were very badly let down by Western powers. But anyway, the British installed him as king in Iraq. Um, in order to do so, they had to grant Iraq a constitution. It was a much less developed country than Palestine by the standards of the day, incidentally. Um, you know, and, um, but Palestine never had its own constitution, but Iraq was given a constitution and then Britain was given the rights of, shall we say, tutelage and so on under this special treaty relationship. Now, many parts of the, what we think of as the British Empire were ruled indirectly from, by Britain and what were known as special treaties. Um, the native states of India, so-called, one very good example, the, state, the Emirates of the Persian Gulf, actually, are another example. And under these treaties, the ruler would retain his sovereignty, but he would delegate various aspects of that sovereignty, crucially foreign affairs, to Britain. Um, all the colonial powers did this sort of thing. They were all at it. And the, the format of the um, Iraqi mandate is rather different because of this uh, different format. But it's quite interesting. If you compare the mandates of Iraq, Syria, and Syria and Lebanon, there are a single mandate, and Palestine, you will find there are various things in common. The clauses about the protection of minorities, the clauses about antiquities are identical in all three of them. You know, they were all, it was all cutting and pasting the same wording, and then thinking about what was particular to that individual country. Um, we've, I'm going to batch two questions now because they kind of follow on from each other. Um, it's about King Crane and uh, Woodrow Wilson. So Nigel Mohammed, he says uh, Woodrow Wilson sent two men named King and Crane to Palestine on a kind of recce mission. On their return, they strongly urged against an exclusive Jewish state. This is known as the King Crane Commission. Why was this ignored? Sorry, could you repeat what they said on their return? Um, on their return, they strongly urged against an exclusive Jewish yeah, state. That's correct. Known as the King Crane Commission. Yeah. Why, so the question is, why was this ignored? And then following on, we've got a question from Andrew Whitley, who says, um, why did Woodrow Wilson propose and enact the King Crane Commission? What were his motivations? And why did he not pursue the commission's recommendation with the British government? Right, to answer Andrew Whitley's um, question first, I don't know. I don't know quite what inspired President Woodrow Wilson's thinking on this point, but of course Woodrow Wilson had come up with the idea of the self-determination of peoples and if you look and you know the King Crane Commission was dispatched by the US government to establish the wishes of the people in these areas that would go under the mandates of um, Syria and Palestine and I'm not sure if it also covered Iraq or not. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but um, why was it, well, originally the idea was it would be done by the principal allied powers. These are the allied powers at the end of World War I. So it would be Britain, France, the United States and Italy. Uh, Britain, France and Italy all thought, hmm, we don't really want this commission going off and producing a report, it might be embarrassing. So they didn't take part in it. Woodrow Wilson, to his credit, or 
I don't know if it was his successor government by then, but anyway, the US administration went ahead and uh, did the report unilaterally. It was still meant to report to all the Allied powers though, and it did so, and everyone buried it. So it was never made publish until all the mandates had been sewn up. Then the Americans, of course, who didn't care too much about it, did what very often happens in the course of diplomatic correspondence. They, um, it got inadvertently published in the States a couple of years later. And everyone said, oh, that was interesting, but it's not really relevant now because we've all moved on. That's my answer. Um, we've got a question from John Quigley. Can the Palestine mandate be seen properly as a document of the League of Nations? Did the council ever consider its contents or express approval of a Jewish national home? The Council of the League of Nations um, approved the mandate in July 1922. So that's the, uh, so it approved what was in that mandate. Uh, so depending on, you may or, I may or may not have answered your question, um, you, know, you know, because it becomes circular. What was a Jewish national home? As I said, that wasn't clarified. I mentioned that in my talk. Um, but whatever was in the Palestine Mandate document was approved by the Council of the League. And then every, and then regularly the League Council would consider an annual report on the Mandate. Um, and we've got a question from Nicolette Baker. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm rushing you through these because we've got so That's many okay. coming in and hopefully we'll get to answer a, a bunch of them, but any ones that we don't get to answer, um, we will either address at the future events if the questions are more related to those topics, um, or we will share them on our um, email list, either um, an audio recording or, or a written word. Um, Vincent Fien is joining us and he asks, um, could you say a word about the Peel Commission and its effect on British government policy? The Peel Commission, now that was in 1937 and it was the first document that called for the um, partition of Palestine. Um, it's a very, very interesting document. It's a uh, it appears to be very thorough. It goes on for about 400 and I think 423 pages. I, I actually read it while preparing to give this talk. Um, and it's a very, very good source actually, if you want to find out about Palestine at the time, including the way in which um, everything was happening in the country. And one of the things that comes out very clearly from it is how by 1936-37, Jews and Arabs had moved so much apart. Now I mentioned um, at the time of the Balfour Declaration, I said the population of Palestine was at least 90% Arab and you could legitimately include the Arab Jews as Arabs, in which case it becomes 95%, um, because you can of course be both Jewish and Arab at the same time. But by 1937, um, as the researchers of Menachem Klein show, and I'd really recommend his book, um, Lives in Common, to anyone who, who, who hasn't yet read it, um, he shows what happened to the Jewish, the Arab Jew, the Arabic speaking Jews of Palestine, really between the Balfour Declaration and up to the um, massacre, you know, the riots in Hebron and Jerusalem in 1929. And those drove a wedge between the Arab people and the Jewish population, forcing the Arab Jews and the European Zionist incomers, the, the colonists, if you like, or the settlers, are forcing them to you know, band together. And that um, is something that, for instance, comes out very clearly in what um, the Peel Commission says. It also shows the um, way in which the Arab population was falling behind the Jewish population and was being in many ways excluded 
by the Jewish immigrants and cut out from many things relevant to the future of the country. Now that is why um, the commission ended up recommending partition. Um, that of course was um, from the point of view of the indigenous Arabic people of Palestine, uh, an absolutely dreadful conclusion for it to have come to. And I think one might point out here that the area it suggested for the proposed Jewish state would contain very, very large numbers of Arabs, uh, some of whom it said would have to be transferred elsewhere. Um, so the recommendations of the um, Peel Commission, I think, were not just controversial. I'm not sure if it, they were really good, but they showed the problem that had arisen. And of course, what happened after that was there was a vast explosion of anger um, across rural Palestine and in the cities. Um, this is what is sometimes often called the Palestine Rebellion of, or the Arab Revolt or, or Arab Rebellion of the late 19, um, of the late 1930s. A very good military history of it has just come out by Matthew Hughes, by the way, which I would recommend and which I also read um, when preparing for this. And it is quite shocking, actually, to consider some of the, what we would now definitely class as war crimes that were thought of as quite okay by the British authorities, provided the violence used served a purpose. But anyway, that rebellion then showed that the plan, was un the plan to partition was unworkable. And then what happened was, of course, it was replaced by the 1939 White Paper. It went against um, partition and suggested Palestine should become uh, independent 10 years later with, um, you know, with restrictions on Jewish immigration. And it would effectively have been an predominantly Arab state with a Jewish minority with a recognized status. But that never came along, as you, as I'm sure everyone watching knows, that was rejected by the, uh, by Hajj Amin al-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem. And many people think he made the wrong call then, as he did on so many other occasions. You said Nicolette Baker had yes, a question. Yes, I did realize that I, um, um, I jumped between questions. So Nicolette Baker, she says, thank you for the fantastic talk. Um, you mentioned the patronizing tone and language of the mandate document and how it was representative of the attitudes at the time. To what extent do you think this perception of certain states as advanced nations has persisted into modern international relations policy? How can we navigate this cautiously when taking measures and acting on our historic responsibility? Well, the only thing I think I can say in response to that is that we have to look at it all with a degree of humility. I mean, um, the best book on the international law at the time about things called the Palestine Mandate and the special treaty relationships I mentioned to Lawrence Joffe in reply to his question is contained by in a book published in 1925 called The Acquisition of Backward Territory in International Law. How, how politically incorrect can you get, of course? Um, but it happens to be a very good legal textbook if you want to know what the law at the time said. And so we can't get away from these. Um, these were the concepts. To understand the concepts, we have to know what the people at the time thought. Um, the concept of advanced nations, of course, was definitely also very self-serving. Um, I think the person who came up with it or was the South African um, Jan Christian Smuts, um, who uh, was one of the great advocates of the British Empire at that stage. Um, I don't know the answer to your question, Nicolette. We just have to go with what we've got, think carefully about what language we use now, but also I think be honest um, you know, it's like the difficulty, do you tear down a statue or do you try for a more nuanced approach? I am generally speaking in favour of a more nuanced approach. Um, but uh, I think it's, uh, it's something we should all be turning our minds to much, much more.
Um, I have a question that's kind of a follow-on question from Chris Greenwood. Um, has the UN ever offered any critique of the mandate's wording or implementation? Um, not to my knowledge, but I haven't sort of looked at all what all the General Assembly resolutions on Palestine have said since the UN was established. The point is, as I said, these were legal texts, so they are there and you have to live with them and see, do the best you can with them. Of course, you might be able to amend them. And on some occasions, I think proposals were made to amend the text of the Palestine Mandate. I don't know if they ever got to the stage of going to the League of Nations. This is the League of Nations, of course, before the United Nations. But the point was they never got anywhere because the Mandates uh, Commission in Geneva, I think, um, always upheld the mandate. And of course, it was a very convenient thing for Britain and also a very convenient thing for France and Syria. Um, I mean, in Syria, um, the Syrians wanted a democratic constitution and produced one and gave it to the French. And the French said, ah, but this would imply terminating the mandate and we can't do that legally because we'd be in breach of our international obligations. In the same way, um, the, the British representatives, the British civil servants would say, oh, but we, we can't do this when they were asked to do something by Palestinian leaders but because it would involve bre breaching our obligations under the mandate. So as I said, the mandates became a straitjacket that were imposed on these countries with disastrous consequences. We're coming to the end of our time now, so um, I just want to uh, remind everyone that I'm posting all the links um, in the chat box, but we will share the transcript and the recording of this as soon as possible on our mailing list. I've just posted the link on how to join our mailing list if you um, haven't already or um, if you want to be added. And um, that will include all the books that John has mentioned in his talk and in the questions that he's answered. Um, and it will include also upcoming events and also his, uh, the promotion by Saki books to get 25% off of any of John's books as long as you order them before the 31st of July. Um, before we go though, um, I would like to say that uh, we very much appreciate if you found this interesting, if you'd consider making a donation, big or small, it's all super helpful and it helps us keep on doing the work that we're trying to do in terms of educating people about um, the role of Britain in Palestine and Israel and uh, we've got an exciting conference coming up soon in um, October 27th so we'll be sharing information about that on the mailing list as well and we hope to see you there but all of our activities sadly cost money and so we very much appreciate um, any kind of donation I've put that link in in the chat box as well now John you've been fantastic but I want to end on one question which I think is quite a fun one for you um, from Paul Timperley, and I have to apologize because we haven't got around to all the questions, but like I said, we will try to get around to them at some point, either at a future talk or um, on the mailing list. Uh, but John Timperley asks, um, can I enter dangerous territory, especially regarding the Balfour Declaration? What part did the banking system play in its creation? I ask. Sorry, I could you say that again? What part did what play in its creation? The banking system play in its creation. Oh. <laughs> Is this one that you want to take or answer later? No, I'll, no, I'll <laughs> certainly take it. I think. I, I, I think. I, I, let no, me. Sorry, um, carry, sorry, there's a bit more. I ask as I've seen Theodore Herzl's diary where he explicitly offered to arrange to reschedule the Ottoman Empire's debt. I appreciate if you choose to avoid the subject for the moment. No. No, I have no one should no one should try to hide historical fact. Uh, with regard to your last remark, um, it is absolutely true that Theodore Herzl um, offered the, the Sultan of Turkey, uh, Abdul Hamid II, um, to uh, discharge uh, Turkish debts in exchange for a kind of charter over Palestine, which would allow Jewish uh, colonization. Um, Interestingly, Herzl made this um, offer without having the money to back it because Herzl did not get on terribly well with the Jewish bankers. He approached like the Rothschild family and um, 
I think Baron de Hirsch in, in Brussels. And, um, but what, there was an element of the con man, I'm afraid, to Theodore Herzl. He thought, ah, if I, if I can get the, the poor old Sultan to agree to this, um, I can then go and I will be able to persuade other people to agree what I have promised him to give him. And of course, he had absolutely no authority from anyone to make any such promises. And it's a very, 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 you've touched on a very dark area, actually, which I think we should actually all be discussing a bit more, because um, things like what Herzl said did lead to, you know, it, it fits in so easily with trope, anti-Semitic tropes, doesn't it? And um, there had been a lot less anti-Semitism. I mean, Europe, there was a particularly vicious sort of anti-Semitism that had grown up in Western Europe and, and of course, in, in Tsarist Russia that was absent in the Middle East. And to some extent, you can find people like French anti-Semites bringing it to the Middle East. And I think Theodor Herzl may unwittingly have done his little bit too. So I've, I've no problems with answering that question. And I and thank you very much for having the courage to answer to ask it. Um, there is another knock-on thing from that which is if you look at the motives of the British politicians who drafted the Balfour Declaration or pushed it through, they weren't necessarily very keen on Jews from Russia, this is to say really oppressed Jews coming to live in Britain, far better for them to go somewhere else. And of course in the depths of World War One, in dark days, and Britain was in dark days in uh, 1917. Uh, Russia had just been knocked out of the war, if you remember. Um, well, look, you know, they were well, very willing to believe conspiracy theories, and I'm afraid some people in the Zionist movement were very happy to go along with that. That's all I'll say, I think. Well, John, thank you so much. Um, loads of comments coming in from everyone. Thank you for a very interesting, informative talk. Um, I found it fascinating and uh, could ask you loads of questions for hours, but unfortunately we've run out of time. Um, we will be sharing, like I keep on saying, the recording um, on the mailing list. So if you've missed this or if you um, uh, want to watch it again in full or read the transcript, then um, that will be available to you. And again, apologies that we haven't got around to everyone's questions. There were just so many. John, I would like to thank you on behalf of everyone here for that amazing talk and we hope to see you all um, at the next one and thank you for joining us today. Bye. Thank you.